Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm on a new microphone. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm also on a new microphone. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Hellas Lager from the KC Beer Company. I should note um, our beer advisor, Aaron Matthew, pointed out the importance of drinking this fresh. And it's been in my fridge for a little while, so um, we're not starting off very well. Sorry, Aaron. Now, uh, we've been teased for always discussing color, but I'm not going to change my protocol. This is a clear yellow see-through beer, and I'm initially suspicious. Which I think is consistent with we've been getting some education on wheat beers the last few months. And so while this would have been like pretty far out of character maybe a year ago, uh, it's actually, um, I think we're in the middle of the fairway by this point. Uh, Yeah, that's probably true. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? Universal Design for Learning is an exciting framework to improve accessibility of instruction. However, Dr. Guy Boyson joins us to discuss his critiques of the existing research to support UDL and how future work could improve confidence among scholars. Later, Lolly DeRosier returns to the show to share a paper on science discourse in urban classrooms. We explore why science talk matters and how to facilitate just and effective discourse among students. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read... Lessons Not Learned, The Troubling Similarities Between Learning Styles and Universal Design for Learning. This is written by our guest, Dr. Guy Boyson. Dr. Guy Boyson is a professor of psychology at McKendree University. His professional career has been dedicated to improving his own teaching and supporting the development of other teachers through writing, editing, and professional service within organizations like the Society for the Teaching of Psychology. Thanks for joining us, Guy. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, so let's uh, so let's start by framing um, what is UDL. Yeah, I can talk just a little bit about uh, I don't know if you maybe the background of the paper and also frame UDL for that. So you know, with some colleagues a few years ago, I was writing uh, updating a book about teaching and looking to make it more focused after the pandemic on how to incorporate online teaching. And so that led me down a rabbit hole of, okay, what are the effective ways to use media? And that pretty quickly led me to UDL. And so I read the book, uh, Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, and initially thought, wow, this is an amazing, and it's basically, that's an application of UDL to the college setting. And I thought, this is a lot of really good ideas, a lot of things that make a lot of sense. And I kind of put that book on the shelf for a while And then something was sort of tickling my brain um, and some of the ideas kind of stuck in my craw. And I I went back and I thought, well, I should go and see if these ideas are supported by research. And that's when I started to have some doubts. And so the ideas basically of UDL is that you've got uh, people don't learn the same way as the, they, they often say that there's no average learner. And so you have to address multiple ways that people learn. So they talk about providing people with multiple forms. So multiple representations. 
So you might give someone, uh, if you're teaching them, you might give them a book or you might give them audio or you might give them video. Uh, they also talk about multiple means of engagement. So they want people to be able to motivate themselves. So you might allow a student to, uh, if they're engaged by working with people, allow them to work with other people. Or if they're more engaged working alone, you might work with them alone. And then you also allow people multiple ways of expression. So if somebody is really great at writing, you allow them to write. And if you, someone is really great at making videos, you allow them to make a video. And so you're trying to allow people to reach their highest potential and learn the most uh, by allowing them basically to match who they are as a learner to the information, how they express that information, how they engage with that information. And that's sort of my little tiny nugget of uh, <laughs> a little tiny quick summary of UDL. All of those things sound really good, right? We've been talking about differentiation in uh, education forever, and UDL is sort of like anticipate the differentiation and put it in the hands of the students so they can take greater autonomy and investment of their educational narrative and experience in your classroom. So it sort of feels like democratizing differentiation, and that has all kinds of emotionally positive narratives that people can really grasp onto. So sounds great. You said that they say that there is learner variability. Is, is there learner variability? Is that something that uh, there's conflicting evidence on? Uh, or is that something that we can kind of stipulate in the remainder of our conversation? Well, that I would say is, uh, if you look at my paper, that's one of the main points of my paper. So I would argue that uh, there are, and I think psychologists would argue that there are known ways that people learn. So we learn through repetition, through practice, through active engagement with what we're trying to learn, uh, through sort of deep processing, thinking about things at a, at a meaningful level and not just a surface level. And those are just some of the basic examples. So I think that psychologists, cognitive scientists would argue that those are kind of non-negotiable things. That's how people learn. And so what UDL, I think, I would argue is a little bit off base is this argument that there's no average learner. And so they focus on the individual differences in those things uh, rather than the fact that there are some universal ways that people learn. I think that saying UDL is suggesting to ignore or neglect some of the generally true things overlooks that if you commit the other direction to focus entirely on the universal components of teaching and learning and generate a classroom that does treat every student as somebody who falls in the middle of a bell curve misses as much of the point as if you were to say that every student should, um, should be able to define their own learning experience. Well, to me, there's always a pretty simple answer. And the answer is, let's put it to a test. <laughs> so what, what do we have evidence for? Uh, if you've tested how people learn, do we have evidence that there's universal things or that it's more advantageous to focus on people's individual learning? And so, you know, what I argue in the paper is that we, in a sense, education already tried this with learning styles. And what we found when people actually tried to look at learning styles is that matching people's individual styles was not really effective. It, it didn't have the effect that people uh, thought that it would. That's actually one of the things uh, I was feeling when I was reading this paper, your paper, 
uh, that it wasn't necessarily saying UDL is bad and we should not do it and you guys are all, you know, fooled and bamboozled. It is, if we actually care about this idea, then let's do some appropriate scientific measurements and try to make some comparisons that are valid so that we can actually wrestle with how to do this better. Your, your point is exactly correct. And if you look at my paper, I would argue most of the points or roughly half of the points in there are about, let's take a look and gather some evidence. Not that there's anything uh, that's fundamentally wrong about UDL. You mentioned the data that's available and uh, reference like learning styles, one of those one of those debunked uh, thoughts that came out in education research a little while ago. We actually did an episode on uh, learning styles. This was a while back. This is in episode nineteen that we looked at uh, some of that some of that discussion. Yeah, I know. I can't believe it was that long ago. Um, and so, I also want to reference what do we currently know about approaching education with a universal paradigm. Because I would argue that looking at some of the historical measures of things like student participation, achievement, and attainment, you see that some of those gaps are coming out from approaching education as a one-size-fits-all endeavor. Well, I guess if I could rephrase your question, is it's could we do better? Yeah, of course we could do better. Uh, and I would argue that one way we could do better is actually have people implement what we know works for, for education. And I think we're in some ways we might be talking across each other in a little bit because I am not, you know, I have, I'm going to be completely agnostic in terms of, uh, you know, primary and high school education, because that's not my field, but in terms of college education, I can definitely say that we are not at a place where people are using uh, educational techniques that are known to be effective. That's, so I'm glad that you pointed that out. So you had a table in your paper a little ways in table one that uh, sort of summarized some of the material and a handful of most relevant UDL studies. And I really appreciated that inclusion in this paper because it was helpful to see some of the examples that you're describing right in there. You can see references to lectures. You can see references to uh, some more antiquated techniques that are updated to some degree. And that's better than not updating them, but there's also still a lot of room to continue updating them in, into alignment with what we currently know about contextually effective practices. I think that, so I think we're, I think we're singing the same song there. Approaching, like, let's go back to that active learning. I, a lot of the notes that I made were like, yeah, let's make more connections to active learning is there are, there's a wide variety of applications of active learning, especially in higher education literature. Some of them are awesome. Some of them are things to which I aspire. Some of them I think are barely meeting the criteria, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's better than the most passive of learnings, but there's still a lot of room to improve that, app, that application. And I think the same thing is true for UDL is UDL is not actually a, a dichotomous. You either are or are not doing any singular thing that is UDL, but that you're interweaving the UDL framework and the priorities within that framework into your, 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 your broader pedagogy that includes things like disciplinary practices. And so I don't think that it's an either or here. And it actually goes back to one of the points that you make that I think is really important. That's about operationalizing UDL. Would, you know, I think there's an article titled something like, would you know UDL if you saw it, or could you recognize it if you saw it? And the idea is what is UDL? <laughs> 
like what do you how much udl do you have to do to be doing udl how many variations do you need uh for the multiple means do you even need multiple means do you have to use all three components for it to be udl so there's really uh the operational operationalization is a, is a very important thing uh, because in a sense, how would you ever, it's so complex, how would you ever disprove that UDL, uh, well, let me rephrase that. How could you ever, well, no, we'll use that. It's to be science, you have to be able to have something be falsifiable. How could you ever falsify UDL? It's so big and unwieldy and has so many things in it. It, it's, it would be impossible to test all of it. Uh, it is, so there needs to be something that is a clear definition of what it means to be someone who uses UDL or doesn't use UDL. What I thought was very interesting, a note that I considered for the first time as I was reading this, is that universal design for learning is a predictive approach. I'm going to have some students who who want to do this or have trouble with this or haven't experienced this. And so I need to give them choices that accommodate this, this, and this for those considerations. And I'm going to do all that ahead of time and I'm going to let them choose and then we're going to go to the next thing afterwards. And I thought that was actually a little bit in contrast to a flag that I've waved on this podcast for many years now about the importance of responsive teaching uh, versus predict sort of predicting. And I, I, I don't know, I don't necessarily feel very uncomfortable. I'm just saying that these are two different ways to look at it. So if we know about the, if UDL assumes there's no bell curve and there's no average, then you've got to anticipate the entire distribution ahead of time. Whereas if there are some universal mechanisms of learning, you can hit those, involve your kids in conversations or assessments about how they're doing, and then respond with uh, maybe increasing the means of access or assessment or communication that is uh, uh guided by the input you're actually having with them, as opposed to assuming the diversity of your kids before you do the lessons. So my critique for UDL is that it's predictive instead of responsive. That's that's so good. So I'm emoting because you're putting ideas in my head that I hadn't connected before. The So you and I have done martial arts together before, and so I'm going to invoke that as an analogy. The responding to something that's happening, we can generally always do. But if I'm throwing a technique and I go to respond to you, there's a very limited number of things I can do to respond other than just meeting your fist with my face. Versus if I do a different thing, a different technique, it puts me in a position to have a greater range of responses to that thing that I'm presented with. And I don't know what particular technique my opponent is going to be throwing at me at that moment, but there are decisions I can make that tailor which responses I am well suited to give in that moment. And I think that that's the connection between um, between the predictive nature of UDL, which I think you're spot on in your description, and the importance of responsive teaching that you and I have read a number of papers on this show where I think that that is a well-supported component of instruction in higher education is the power of responsive teaching. So I think that's what it is. It's a framework to predict what you will see in the classroom to set you up to have the maximum degree of responsiveness. And I don't think that I've ever said or heard anybody frame it that way before, but I really love that. I love it. I'm going to say that a lot now. Um, n just to be pedantic, 
because that's what this show's all about. Uh, what's a framework? <laughs> I mean, I don't have an academic. I'd have to look it up. I don't. I don't have. I don't I mean, have an. Is it a tool to help you think about something? Is it? Oh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it gets so close to being uh, this idea that it, it's too big to be tested. Therefore it can never be disproven. I would argue though, I would argue that you could, you can, even if it's a big framework, you still could test individual components of it. And there are people who've done that. Uh, and so or you could uh, implement the framework in one classroom or at one school and not implement it in another school. And there just has not been very much work. Uh, I can think of maybe one study where they've done something like that. And it was even, even I think, even smaller than that. It was like for a specific course and a specific lesson, they implemented it. And you should be able to tell whether students are, are more successful. And, you know, the thing about it is, that, you know, if you look at, at the college level, there has literally been hundreds of studies that have compared uh, the idea of something that's active versus something that's passive. And there's been multiple meta-analyses to show that active learning works in terms of being more successful. And I just don't, I don't see UDL as being something that's too big to be tested in, in the same way. And that's one of the reasons I included that, that table in my paper is to just show how limited the evidence is uh, in terms of what we know about its effective implementation or whether it can be effectively implemented at the college level. Because I think that's your, I think you're spot on is these implementations are effective in these ways. If we tweak them in those ways, they'll be more or less effective. And that's all I ever want in the world. That's what I'm doing. That's th Those are the studies I'm designing. That's what I'm doing right now. That's amazing. I feel great. About and that. that's great. And th there's been a couple of them, like uh, it's cited in the, my paper of uh, the, the people who have been looking at closed caption versus not using closed caption. I mean, that sounds like a tiny little thing, but they, they've produced some pretty good evidence that, that supports a UDL principle that if you give people kind of uh, a choice to use this, this mechanism, then they, they learn a bit more. Um, so, that, I mean, that sounds tiny when you compare it to the, the big framework of UDL, but if they're going to make all these claims, then that's, that's kind of what, what needs to happen. Uh, the piece that I want to come back to is you mentioned students' abilities to make choices. And that's actually something that I think is a major assumption in the paper that you've written is I I disagree that the UDL uh, framework assumes students will always make the best choices for their learning. And I think that's something I think that it's more nuanced than that. I think I know from my own classroom experience, if I present students with the opportunity to watch a 20 minute video or I present students with the opportunity to watch that same video or read an article or, I don't know, work with something else. And I don't make them choose between those materials, but rather let them navigate using any or all of those materials and then help train, uh, help them understand the implications of the choices they've made so that they can make better choices in the future, that that's a mechanism for growing their efficacy as learners and that that will increase their academic benefits over time. I guess my question would be, how do you, I mean, what you're saying sounds very good. Uh, so I guess maybe my question for you is, how do you get them, how do you get students to figure out what the best techniques are for them? 
Like, yeah, that's the big question. It actually brings me back to one of your core arguments about general trends across humanity of effective learning practices. Yeah, one of the critiques in the sort of like uh, litany of choice UDL framework that you kind of presented in your paper, like you give them choices about how they're going to receive the information. You give choices about how they're going to um, communicate about that information. You have choices about how they're going to engage that information. Uh, One could easily come to a critique that it allows students to avoid opportunities to practice skills that they where they lack proficiency. And it can also reinforce a fixed mindset where students are say, saying things like, I make videos because I'm bad at writing. And they just kind of go through the lessons. And in that case, what they're doing is you're giving them outs to avoid productive struggle. And that's not great. Terrible. Um, and so sometimes the way students need to struggle with information or an experience is exactly the way they don't want to do it. Um, and you have to kind of help them reevaluate their relationship to productive struggle. Uh, and that it requires some nuance because productive struggle is the active learning that we have been lauding this entire conversation. A lot of higher education students in a lot of contexts, I can't speak to your university, but I can speak to the universities in my region. If they're walking into a UDL classroom, a UDL aligned classroom, and it's their first encounter with a UDL aligned classroom, I've seen by and large, they're walking into those places incentivized to do those unproductive practices. They're incentivized to find the path of least resistance, a transactional nature of higher education, and a minimization of investment, often a very essentialist approach to their own abilities. And so like we have to start the most, like they're at the lowest level of competency with regard to empowered autonomous learners generally. Now, like the students coming out of Mr. Woodruff's classroom, I think that that's less true. But broadly, if we only look at individual studies and the efficacy of students in that classroom and their ability to navigate choice, I think broadly, higher education is generally doing a pretty bad job of preparing them to navigate those situations. And so if we don't look at that within a context, we're going to miss that even small gains, small gains that will be frustrating to me and to you as an effective autonomous learner has to recognize that that's still a considerable benefit because generally a higher education system is not doing a great job of, of empowering those students. This also has to do with uh, the term that gets used in psychology is desirable difficulties. Uh, and so that this fits with what you all are saying is that people might not have a good sense of uh, what is helping them learn. And in fact, some of the things that make learning hard <laughs> is what we should absolutely be doing and hard in the sense of it's hard mental work, not that it's wasted effort. Uh, so doing things like distributing your practice, interleaving your studies so that you're not studying one thing in a masked way. Um, these are things, you know, not just rereading things, thinking about them at a deep way are, are really important things that feel like you're wasting your time because it's hard, uh, but are things that are very important to do. And so, again, I think if 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 people even when you, even when students know about good study prior, you know, practices, college students, they might practically decide to do other things because they have other other motivations. So they're getting back to this idea that sometimes people are are avoiding desirable difficulties. 
that because it's not an unre it's a rational response to a system that so often doesn't incentivize productive struggle. And so, like even in a world where we have students coming into a you know a mid level psychology course, they may very reasonably be looking for if I spend all this time and energy having a deep, robust understanding of content, but that investment's not going to be recognized with a baseline level of um, I don't want to say compensation, but recognition. If that's not going to lend value, then they very reasonably might divert those activities elsewhere. And I know that I've done like I, I know that I've made I've made that choice. And so it's uh, it goes back to the importance of developing the classroom culture or perhaps the department or programmatic culture so that by the time they're in the third or the fourth course, they can walk in the door, both knowing how to effectively navigate choices that maximize their learning and having the trust that if they put in the time and energy to do those very unpleasant things, right? Retrieval practice when you've forgotten things. And if you don't understand the importance of forgetting and long-term learning it's like that, it sucks. It sucks. So like recognize that if I'm going to do that, it's going to be worth it. Then you get the really big gains, but it goes back to your point of, okay, that's a lot of ifs. So <laughs> uh, we got to go get that data to support that. And I'm, I am with you. I'm, I'm with you in that, in that regard. Like, yeah, we've got to get that empirical evidence. I, I don't know. I don't know that you're, you're wrong. I, I do think an interesting question is just, the, again, the difference between K-12 versus college. So the settings are so different and there's so many fundamental differences in what the classrooms are like. So in some ways, I think UDL it makes a lot more, I don't know, it makes some more sense in places in the K-12 where you do not have a selection of students and you've got smaller classrooms and the learning is, is by definition very generalized across a whole bunch of areas uh, and learners are not so independent. They're sort of dependent on a lot of things in their life. Uh, so I do think uh, I do think there's a big difference, and some of what you're saying, like that, it might have a bigger impact on certain levels of students. That makes sense to me at a K through 12 level, um, and I think the impact might be smaller at the college level because there's maybe less variation to improve on because you've got a certain level of academic ability just by the inherent fact that you're in in college versus a school a K 12 where you might have people who uh, who are on every possible academic level from the highest uh, down to those with, with special needs and disabilities. Which is interesting. I, as a follow-up question to that, um, do you think that that's appropriate? Do you think that perhaps the existing framework of higher education that still has a considerable degree of ineffective practices that are happening and um, decisions to not accommodate student needs are we perhaps selecting for a fairly narrow definition of academically capable students that perhaps it is that way and shouldn't be that way? I'm not sure that we can make the assumption that college students are, have been selected to be autonomous learners if the practices of K-12 has, haven't been promoting the skills of autonomous learning. Students who are who are judged to have a high probability of success in post-secondary learning, yeah, uh, a meaningful fraction of them are not. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. Is that 
I don't know that it's safe to assume that, well, universal learning matters more in K-12 because college students can fend for themselves. I don't know that my argument would be that college students can fend for themselves. I just think the distribution of, I mean, for lack of a better word, uh, cognitive ability is much more narrow in college uh, because that's how student that's how students are selected. That's just I'm not you know it sounds like it sounds rude to say or biased or something like that, but that's literally the selection criteria is, is cognitive ability. Is it though? Are they selected for cognitive ability? No, I don't think they're selected I mean, for I, cognitive I, there's ability. There's probably a loose but statistically significant connection, but like no, we're using proxies that are. A, not yeah that are not great metrics i think that's true and i i hate it i hate that truth and i think that's something that higher institutions of higher education must urgently address both with the elevated attention towards issues of societal justice and also just from the standpoint of they can't afford to be that way anymore like you're watching institutions shuttering entire departments closing programs shedding faculty like that's not a sustainable approach to higher education, even if they want it to be. I think that it's incumbent upon institutions of higher education to recognize that narrow bandwidth of ability who are able to succeed in their current paradigm, recognize that that band is not wide enough for them to sustain themselves as an institution or to pursue their goals of justice as many institutions are declaring and do things to widen it. Uh, well, I, I know that we're, we've already gone over time for what we've asked of you on this afternoon. Um, we want to be sure to give you the last word. This is, we are yielding the last word to you. Feel free to use it when you are ready. Well, I, I'll just reiterate kind of uh, what I've been saying the whole time, and that is that UDL is certainly an interesting framework for structuring education. And there is a, a host of wonderful educational practices in there. Uh, but I think that the claims that they make in terms of uh, the people who are promoting UDL as a way to get people to learn more effectively everywhere at every level are a little bit premature and that there are some some questionable assumptions that they've made in, in making this framework and that there are definitely some some room uh, to find some evidence to back up these claims. And, you know, I wrote this paper uh, sort of to maybe prompt some of that investigation and just to point out that it needs to be done uh, so that this kind of this call for wholesale wholesale adoption of UDL uh, doesn't happen without some of the evidence that would be needed to back it up. Cool. I'll follow up with you uh, when we get off the phone so we can put in our grant applications to do that work. <laughs> Sounds good. If, if, uh, if listeners have been piqued by the things that you said, where can they find more out? about you. So in addition to the UDL work, I've also done some general work related to education at the college level overall. And so I've got a couple books, one on online teaching and one on general uh, teaching at the college level that I've written with some excellent colleagues, if you're interested in finding those. And then if you're interested in becoming a psychology professor, I literally wrote a book with exactly that name uh, that's published by the APA. So if that's in your uh, wheelhouse in terms of what career you might want to do, uh, and it's also a pretty good just general guide to academic uh, job searches. So those are those are a few pieces of work that if you're interested, you could go out and find. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Have a good rest of your weekend. Yeah, you all too. We provided a pre-release copy of this discussion to representatives of CAST for comment. 
Dr. James Basham, KU professor and senior director of learning and innovation for the UDL IRN, gave a response, which we have posted on our website, twopintplc.com. For our second segment, we read A Systematic Review of Science Discourse in K-12 Urban Classrooms in the United States, Accounting for Individual, Collective, and Contextual Factors. This was written by Christine Bay, Daphne Mills, Fa Zhang, Martinique Seeley, Lauren Cabrera, and Marquita C. This was published in the Review of Educational Research in 2021, and this paper was brought to our attention by a friend of the show. Uh, we have with us today uh, Lolly DeRozier. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's really, really good to be back. Lolly DeRozier is a K-12 science teacher and education advocate. She has been teaching biological sciences for over 20 years and is currently a doctoral student at the University of Central Florida studying curriculum and educational psychology. Lolly is particularly interested in the intersection of science and visual art and previously appeared on episode 38. Welcome. So my advisor passed this on to me. Uh, she is wonderful um, and really, really good about keeping in constant dialogue with me and, and passing on things that are current in the literature. And she thought that the framework for this paper would be good for me because this paper is looking is a complex framework. It's looking at multiple levels of a problem and how those levels interact. And that uh, has some similarities to what I currently study, which is um, inquiry in science education. So can I ask you a question that is actually taken out of our last segment that we just recorded? What is a framework and where does it sit relative to other sizes of ideas? So if we think of a framework literally, when you frame a picture, uh, when you uh, create a frame for a painting, you are literally hanging this representation onto a structure. So when we think about intellectual, philosophical, academic frameworks, we can think about it the same way. We have an underlying structure that is composed of theoretical concepts, practical applications, and evidence from the field. And we use that to construct an underpinning for the concept that we want to explore. My first note in my first note in what came out of here is like why does science talk matter? Because science discourse and specifically science discourse in urban education, they brought in a lot of different ideas connecting science literacy, uh, mechanisms of building understanding and sense making, and all of those things are individual ideas that we've referenced in other papers in the show. How does discourse sit in a place that draws from sociocultural context, that draws from sense-making and epistemological agency, draws from science literacy, like all these big ideas that have relevance to science discourse? So in the paper, they talk about, you know, I'm going to quote from the paper. So in the paper, they have this operational definition of science discourse, which is, quote, the representation of phenomena in the natural world through language, including text in various modes of spoken and figural representation, unquote. So really what we're talking about is the main way in which teachers and students interact in the classroom. You know, we have textbooks, we have websites, we have labs, we have activities, we have icebreakers and bell ringers and all that stuff. But throughout all of that, underlying all of that, 
is the way that students talk to one another, the way that teachers talk to, to students, the way that students talk to teachers. Science talk is the primary currency of learning in a science classroom. And so it's really important to understand why talk develops the way that it does. What are the influences, as the paper says, in the, at the micro level of why students engage in science talk the way they do? And then at the meso level and at the macro level, what are the environmental influences in the classroom? What are the cultural influences of the school? What are the societal influences? What are the factors that are being brought in from home, from society, historical, right? All of those things affect what happens when students open their mouth to talk about science. To, to me, I really resonated with the like in the opening paragraph of this paper, uh, one of my favorite psychological uh, educator figures, Vygotsky, quoted, argued that um, uh, turning thoughts into speech does, is not merely a mode of expression, but it takes the thought uh, and gives it reality and form. And so the should of this paper is very clear from the very beginning. We got to find ways to get your kids productively talking about science. That's what you got to do. And that was so clear from the beginning. Uh, and then as I started reading it, I got overwhelmed because so many things mattered. So many things mattered. It was difficult for me to say, oh my gosh, everything is so important. Okay. So I think, I think in the paper... When we're talking about students in urban contexts, when we're talking about black and brown students, particularly students who come from poverty or lower SES contexts, the, the part in the paper that discusses funds of knowledge and the prior knowledge that students bring to contexts, the, there was some emphasis on how the teacher's choices in presenting information, directing information, and acknowledging which information is valid is really, really important for establishing a culture in which students feel like they can contribute, right? There's some mentions about how student self-efficacy uh, contributes to their likelihood to participate in the discussion. Students um, like visualizing themselves as experts uh, contributes to the likelihood of their participating in the discussion. And I, I personally think, and they didn't talk about it very much, except kind of towards the end, kind of in passing, I think it's important to acknowledge the top-down pressures that exist in classrooms as long as we in this country have a high-stakes testing environment that emphasizes canonical scientific knowledge we're always going to have teachers who are reluctant to relinquish control, who are fearful. I mean, the word is fearful to let students really take over and have agency in the conversation. There was a lot of discussion in the paper about student agency and the factors that contribute to student agency, but there was not a lot of discussion about teacher training 
in order to give teachers the tools to give up the kind of control that's necessary for student agency to become a real thing in the classroom. It's not enough to just create a space where students feel like they can participate in authentic ways. Teachers need to be conscious of how their scaffolding and questioning shapes students' responses and interactions. And that involves uh, unlearning what they have tacitly learned in their previous schooling, which is to give correct answers in the expected ways. And that framing can be hard, especially for teachers who maybe didn't have that training in college. It's not how it was framed for us during our science training. You mentioned unlearning. like That's a big bite of unlearning within ourselves to be able to provide those kinds of environments to students. Not only that, but it misrepresents scientific knowledge because... Those are not crystallized facts. They improve over time as our resolution and observations and explanatory power improves. So the crystallized facts from 50 years ago are not the crystallized facts from today and won't be the crystallized facts 50 years from now. So it's not great on a lot of levels. And not just longitudinally, not just over time as we learn about things, but contextually, the way that we understand facts, facts in quotes today, you know, when like we've seen this in the last 18 months, we've seen this with the struggle to get people vaccinated and the lower rates at which black and brown communities are being vaccinated. And we see uh, efforts to bridge that gap with science knowledge about vaccine efficacy without much acknowledgement of historically problematic, racist interactions with black and brown communities around vaccines and medicine. You know, you talk about what could be termed as politeness or appropriate or professional discourse that is in fact just colonialism in a classroom. And I think we have to recognize, especially for white teachers, what's the role of what I am used to seeing and the ways of being that I am used to engaging in? And what does that mean for marginalizing students who don't look like me? Because that conception of science is also, there is a conception of discourse that is also, should be pluralistic in our classrooms. And that's something we also have to interrogate in ourselves. What were y'all's takeaways about the framework for, um, for discourse that is being proposed by these authors. Other than it's complicated. Yeah. Well, that was what I was mostly feeling. Um, I was feeling to, to throw some buzzwords out. I was, I was feeling uh, a lot of student centered discourse. Uh, although that term has some kind, sometimes been ground to, Obsol not obsolescence, but like meaninglessness. Expanded to inapplicability. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Expanded to in inapplicability. But I like that. get the kids talking to to each other and you uh, about 
the science experience. So provide experiences for them to talk about, provide avenues for them to ask and answer questions with and amongst each other and you, and also consider the value of their language in the responses as more than just formative assessment. Um, to what? Okay, so this is an idea that's not fully fleshed out, so bear with me. To what extent do you think it's possible to propose a framework for, for discourse in a classroom, whether it's a science classroom or any other, that accounts for all the myriad possible student experiences that are represented in a classroom? Or put another way, if we look at it from the critic's perspective, at what point do you say this is too big for any one teacher? That's a good question. Well, gosh, you know, um, communication is really about humanization. So when we have humanizing pedagogy and the ideas about human humanizing pedagogy, I think that's really what we have to promote in terms of the interactions with each other. And I like when you flipped it and said that, when is this too big for one teacher? Um, I think that's great because it's always going to be too big for one teacher. They need, they need humanizing. They, our students need humanizing pedagogy experiences from all of their instructors. Um, because we're all humans and we're all different humans and having the ability to recognize the humanity in each other, which is an intrinsically different humanity is important. Right, right, right. I, so for me, if I can, so you were talking about like, what are the linguistic norms that my students bring to the classroom? Like for me, what really jumped out through all of this, because, you know, as we said, it's, it's a very dense paper. The, the one kind of central nugget was student agency. And if there's, if I had to pick one direction for future research, it would really be, and, and, and as something that's feasible for any single teacher, is to really identify what are the obstacles to student agency at the different levels that were described at the individual level? What are the students' obstacles to agency? What are the preconceived notions about the agency they have and what they think they're allowed to do in a classroom, what they think they're allowed to do in a discussion? What are the obstacles that the teacher brings to their interactions with the students? What, is the, what are the obstacles at the cultural level of the school? What are the obstacles in terms of societal norms? And if, if an individual teacher who knows their students can identify those obstacles and mitigate them, then I think this kind of approach to student-led discourse becomes very possible. Well, and each teacher has limited control over the world right like there are only so many obstacles i can remove so even if you can't mitigate the obstacles if you can recognize them and we can build unity around navigating them together even though that's an obstacle that's terrible i'm sorry that's there i can't remove it but 
I can help, like we can work together to chart the best course through the world, recognize that article, just that obstacle does exist. I think the act of honoring what students see builds trust that you're not going to surprise them with other obstacles, right? Like if I, if I pretend that that is not there, then students have no reason to trust me when I say there's no obstacle over there either. Like, well, you're not even, you're not even acknowledging that one. So I don't trust you. Like, no, I'm going to just try to be safe and navigate this colonized environment. But if you're like, yeah, that's a real obstacle, then you can build more trust that as students strike out and exercise their autonomy and, and travel new paths that you and they both know the teacher has not seen before. They can do that with a confidence that the teacher is going to not suddenly punish them or marginalize them or dehumanize them. And that is empowering. That does. It, it does, but it feels like, uh, like this is the part where I start to get kind of mad right? When I think about what's actually happening in classrooms, because I think that, like, I think a lot of teachers would buy into that until it's time to give a test. I I kind of feel like that's the point where it all falls apart, the point of assessment. Acknowledge, plus one, validate. Yeah, assessments, assessments is a time where where things fall apart. So I'm wondering... Do you think that it would be enough? Like, let's imagine tomorrow I could wave a magic wand and say standardized assessments do not exist. No, I don't think it would be enough to remove standardized testing because I don't think that um, that pluralistic discourse is the norm in teacher training. I mean, I, I, I don't think that um, I, I think this. For this to become a widespread method of science instruction, there needs to be a fundamental shift in what we think of as the goals of science instruction. There's a there's a section in the collective section, which is by far my favorite section, talking about the importance of teachers facilitating ambiguity or uncertainty in their instruction. And I think that, that actually connects back to this this conversation. But I think rather than peppering around lots of different little bitty unconnected you know, nuggets of, you know, nascent schema, building one gives you the opportunity to identify opportunities where there are moments of uncertainty, where students have the most robust background knowledge to engage in debate. Like if I've, if we've only built an itty bitty little schema around this idea, and then I point out a thing they don't know, they're like, yeah, we don't know all sorts of things. But so what? But if you've spent time building a really robust schema and then you look to the perimeters of that schema to identify how this question around heritability informs our fundamental understanding of climate change, they have a lot more information to bring to bear on that question, both in understanding the uncertainty, but then also to address it through discourse. And so I think, back to your comments, 100% agree. Like the, so yes, define where you're going to build schema, build a robust schema, and then lean into your opportunities on the edges to leverage where there's uncertainty because that's where the good discourse happens. And that's what was in the paper. I like identifying the student uncertainty 
as sort of like the valuable seed of discourse. Like you got to be tuned in with your kids, listening to what they're saying. You got to let them express it in the way they want to express it and where they are uncertain. That's where you're like, that's the fertilest soil for growth and then respond to that uncertainty and build their schema in that direction. And those are some of the most exciting classroom moments too. You know, after 23 years, knowing and being able to anticipate which questions my students will have or which objections they will raise uh, leads to some of the most incredible epiphanies uh, that, that you can facilitate for them, right? You can have it for them, but you can facilitate it for them. I like that. This has been interesting to think about, like, where would I start if I had to pick one thing? Probably evolution. I don't know. I think like, you know, within, within evolution there, because when I'm talking about evolution, I'm not just talking about natural selection. I'm talking about understanding bacterial resistance to antibiotics. I'm talking about understanding symbiotic relationships in ecosystems. I'm talking about understanding succession and sustainable farming practices. I'm talking about, uh, you know, understanding uh, ecological responses to changes in the environment, uh, like the, you know, genetically modified organisms, uh, like all of that ties back to a fundamental understanding of what evolutionary theory has to say. Looking at this study as a whole, looking at this literature review as a whole, um, I really appreciate the author's nod to the complexity of the subject and the multiple levels at which the effects of science discourse are felt and the factors that complicate the implementation of science discourse in the classroom. Um, the thing that jumps out to me at the end of it all is the importance of agency on the part of the student and the role that the teacher plays in facilitating student agency and removing obstacles to agency, whether those obstacles come from within the student as far as their, um, their cultural influences or their prior experience that may inhibit them from participating and also the environmental factors that come into play when you have students from different cultural and ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. It's an incredibly complex subject. I think that it's something that has to be addressed in teacher training, in pre-service, in professional development once teachers are in practice. I think that it involves reflection on the part of the teacher as a practitioner that maybe is not addressed in the article in the way that, that I would like to see. I think that our own biases as instructors about what we think is important and relevant and true, um, true with a capital T, uh, that heavily influences what we do in our day-to-day. -day. And, um, and it's something that teachers, and I include myself with that, are maybe not comfortable deconstructing. You know, we don't like to think about how our own practices and beliefs may be inhibiting our students' learning. And when it comes to really authentically giving agency to students in science classrooms, that's something that has to be confronted head on. So I would love to see that in future research.
if our audiences uh, enjoyed your voice and your uh, message, where could they get more? You can find me on Twitter at Lab Coat Teacher. Empower each other. How was the beer? I definitely enjoyed the beer. This is in that like lighter, easier to drink category. Although there's something on the front end. I, w- I was trying to decide to what do I attribute that flavor. I went with barley. Is it barley? I have no idea. I don't know. Early, I feel great. <laughs> and, and later, I feel a little bit of sweetness. Yeah, man, I don't know. The side of the box says crisp, clean, classic, and yep. Okay, the flavor in beers that I don't like, it has in the smallest amount I've ever tasted. So it is the least offensive of the offensive beers, which I'm going to guess means it is slightly hoppy. We appreciate you all tuning in. This has been a lot of fun talking with you this month, having a couple of guests. Thank you to Guy. Thank you to Lolly. And we hope that you are having a better audio experience as we have made improvements to our studio setup so you have a better listening experience. Remember, this is Better Together. If you have paper suggestions, guest suggestions, or even want to come on yourself, this is Better Together. Uh, Also, beer suggestions. We're open to beer suggestions. Yeah, for sure. So this is Better Together in all the ways. Also. Our beer vizier has his own podcast. It's called Life of the School Podcast, and we were guests on that podcast recently. It was a holiday episode. We drank a holiday beer, and we played some holiday games, and it was really fun to uh, to uh, just get to play with him. His He doesn't do the, the boring academic deep, deep dives. He just talks about teaching, and it's fun. So go enjoy a fun episode at Life of the School Podcast. And, uh, you know, play some games and drink some beer. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.